This is the BBC. The following programme is based on actual events. It is important to remember, however, that you can't rewrite history. Not one line. Except, perhaps, when you embark on an adventure in space and time. Movies. No more room in hell. TV. Conventions. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spiny sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where are the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the hero. This is the GW Podcast. Hello and welcome to the GW Podcast. I'm Scott Woodard, and sitting directly across the country from me is my co-host, Arnold T. Blumberg. Hello. And today we are just a couple of days, uh, as we're recording this, we're just a couple of days past the official 50th anniversary of the uh, the premiere of Doctor Who. Woohoo! And we are going <laughs> to talk a little bit about the stuff that pretty much all of you had to have seen over the last few days. And that, of course, included the Day of the Doctor 50th anniversary special, as well as uh, an adventure in space and time, which was, uh, that also aired a couple of days before, prior to that, or a day before, right, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then we'll also touch base a little bit on uh, the Five-ish Doctors parody, which I'm sure se- several of you uh, saw. And uh, what else? Oh, and Big Finish, uh, they also did a really nice 50th anniversary uh, presentation of The Light at the End, featuring multiple Doctors, and we'll touch base a little bit on that one as well. So, kind of our big wrap-up of the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. So, uh, let's get started. I've been running all my life, Time and space. Every second of every minute of every day for over 900 years. I fought for peace in a universe at war. Now the time has come to face the choices I've made in the name of the Doctor. Our future depends on one single moment of one impossible day. The day I've been running from all my life. The day of the doctor. It really did feel like just about everything you'd want to have go well went well to celebrate something this momentous, and it was quite a ride for that weekend. So, yeah, lots, lots and lots to talk about, lots and lots to be happy about and excited about, which is a nice feeling. It is, it is. And, you know, I, I have to admit that I was a little nervous going into it because I didn't know if it was going to be a darker uh, direction that the story was going to go in or something like that. But uh, as we'll talk about, it was a true celebration of the series. And uh, by the end of it, uh, if you weren't beaming, you were you were missing something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to agree. And that's the thing. Even the they really played it close to the vest. They didn't do much in the way of trailers or promotion to the point where you get the usual uh, you know, a chorus going on of, you know, where's a trailer? Where's more? In a way, that's probably a f- far smarter way that they went. They kept so much of this under wraps that even the most dedicated spoiler hounds among fans really didn't know all that much about what, what was coming going in. And it did look very dark. 
the the poster art, everything about it, we kind of got the idea that the Time War was going to rear its head again, but it looked really dark. And instead, it just felt like a complete inversion of all that. It was really narratively. It was like a celebration of joy and peace overcoming war, and it was just so happy. It was it was really really a nice job. Couldn't couldn't have I I can't imagine how many more ways it could have possibly been better as something that really celebrated the anniversary. And I have to also give credit as Stephen Moffat himself said, a show that didn't just celebrate the past but moved the story forward for the next fifty years. And I wasn't sure what he meant by that or what that might mean. And I genuinely agree that it's exactly what he did. I couldn't agree with you more. And before we get into all those details, though, uh, we did want to wrap up at least one contest and launch another contest for our listeners. Uh, the first contest that we do need to, to resolve is uh, we did do a – we introduced a contest uh, a couple of episodes ago, the prize being a copy of Monsters of Legend by Midnight Syndicate, a copy of uh, the CD. Uh, and we got some entries, and we did want to draw and announce our winner. And I'm doing that as I speak. And it looks like, hey, no laughing. It looks like Keith Woodruff is our winner. Yay! So, Keith, I'll be contacting you with information on, to, to get your address and all that, and we'll get that off to you uh, as soon as possible. So thank you very much for entering our uh, our little contest there. We'll and- send you the address for the alley where you have to meet to pick it up. <laughs> Don't bring any uh, any devices to protect yourself with. <laughs> yeah, please don't be frightened. Yeah, it's okay. Um, right, and then uh, and then now we have to go into our our big contest because this one is actually a pretty exciting one. We have quite a special prize here. Uh, in honor of Doctor Who's anniversary, we are going to be giving away a copy of the Doctor Who Technical Manual, which was written by Mark Harris, features an introduction by former Doctor Who producer John Nathan Turner. This was an anniversary volume that was released for, if I'm not mistaken, what, the 20th anniversary? The 20th anniversary. Yeah, 1983. I'm flipping it open right now and seeing the date right there. Uh, It features blueprints and images of a variety of things, including the TARDIS and the sonic screwdriver, certainly the classic design sonic screwdriver, the toolkit, the console. It's got images of Daleks, even plans of Daleks with measurements. Not sure how accurate they are, but they look quite nice. Uh, Lots of full-color photos as well, which is kind of cool. I'm looking at a nice full-color image of the uh, evil of the Daleks emperor, and uh, as well as K-9 and Cybermen and the robot from... Same the the story robot Movellans all sorts of great stuff really neat little book uh, runs about oh the other thing that it contains is it has plans so that you can build your own little cardboard TARDIS yep how can you go wrong with that I know it's perfect uh, yes I'm just... it's it's an amazing window back too to the way the anniversary that anniversary was being celebrated back then yeah it's, it, it really it's a slice is. of history it's a neat little slice of history uh, it looks like it's a sixty four page book. And we are going to give a copy of this thing away to a lucky listener. And the way we'd like to do that this time is no trivia questions, no challenges of any kind. Uh, what we'd like you to do is just write to us and tell us how you first discovered Doctor Who. What was your first Doctor? Did you discover it on PBS back in the 80s? Or did you start with Christopher Eccleston or David Tennant or even Matt Smith? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love, uh, you know, feel free to write stories, if you will, uh, to tell us a little bit more about how you first discovered the show, maybe who introduced it to you. And what we'd like you to do is send that to contact at g2vpodcast.com. 
and we'll go through them and read them. And on our next episode, we'll read a few of those on uh, on the show. But one of you, uh, one of you, will be selected at random and win a copy of the Doctor Who technical manual from 1983, the 20th anniversary of the uh, the shows uh, of the show of Doctor Who. So anyway, please enter. We'd love to hear from you. Well, anyway, now that that part's out of the way, we should really turn our attention to probably the biggest, well, certainly the biggest event of the anniversary weekend, which was the airing of the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor. Um, in some sense, a kind of modern version of the three doctors from the 10th anniversary, in which, although there's a, a full scope of things and certainly plenty of references to satisfy everyone from the very beginning of the show all the way to the present, it focuses in on three incarnations of the Doctor, including one that we never knew existed until recently. And that dynamic, for one thing, that dynamic in many ways shows, well, before this even happened, and I and I feel it's important to own up to things when you're wrong, or at least when you realize that it could have been it could have been a bad idea. I was someone very vocal online about how for the 50th anniversary, I wanted all the doctors back in their costumes. I want to see everybody. I want them all meeting. I don't care how silly some people think it is. And the Time Crash mini-episode that Moffat had himself written years ago offered a wonderful get-out right there where it referenced the idea that shorting out the time differential is the reason why Peter Davison's doctor looked older. So there's your reason why all of them could look older when they arrive and meet younger selves. Fine. Perfect. Except that several things prove to me on the day that it's better and it makes for a more exciting and coherent story if you don't necessarily throw all 11 into the mix. And instead, he focused on three. He gave us the opportunity to see the doctor playing against himself, uh, finding flaws in himself, enjoying his own company, and doing it in a way that would have been probably muddled and impossible if you had an army of them. So I have to say now, I completely reverse my opinion. While I'm sure a really solid writer could have done something with it, I don't think it was going to be a good idea to go that route anyway, and I think he made the right choice. You reversed the polarity of your original opinion. I did! <laughs> That's right! Uh, I agree. I'm excusing the polarity of it. And of course, when you were saying it would have been an impossibility, I've, I was thinking impossibility. But anyway, uh, right, you'll have to go and listen to our Chronic Rift interview, or yeah, our interview that we did with John Drew to hear some more stuff about that. But anyway, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. And we, I think what happened here was you and I both went into it. Uh, and again, going back to what we were saying earlier with these images of sort of dark posters, dark war explosions and very glum looking image, you know, pictures of the doctors. I think we had a lot of fear that it might have gone in that direction. But instead, what we, as we were saying, we got a great celebration. And yeah, if we had gone with all those doctors, I do agree. It would have been confusing and we would not have had the opportunity to explore the character of the doctor as well as we did in this particular special. Now, here's one thing that's like a larger philosophical idea about it before we get maybe into some of the details and the things that were like fun little Easter eggs and, and beautiful touches. At its heart, as it turns out, and again, I guess for full disclosure, we should say both of us have had our occasional problems with aspects of Moffat's era. It has not been a smooth ride all the way, at least not from our perspective. Don't so tune that, out. Don't tune out. Yeah, don't tune out because we think he did uh, an absolutely spectacular job with this. And not only that, but one of the things that I found most impressive about it was 
there were so many things he did right. And one of the things I think was most important was that at its core, this entire 50th anniversary special was about what makes the doctor the doctor, what makes him our hero, what makes him the man that we have loved and respected and seen as an icon for 50 years. And what that is, is that he's a man of peace at all costs. And in one of those beautiful little touches, by the way, in a reference to something that former script editor and writer Terrence Dix has said many, many times over the years, but had never had appear in the show before. And David Tennant's doctor gets to say it, never cruel, never cowardly. He's a man that seeks the impossible solution, to use one of Moffat's favorite words. Uh, even, in a, even in a moment, it seems like everything winds up being a pun. That wasn't intentional. Even in a moment where there seems to be no other solution, he finds it. Now, what I find interesting about this is, since the show came back in 2005, we've had this time war. And it was, at the time, it seemed like a brilliant way to create an additional backstory to this character, to clean the slate in some respects, to open the door to a lot of other stories, and to create a doctor who was rediscovering himself after a horrific event. And that was how Russell T. Davis brought the show back. Watching the Day of the Doctor, more than anything else, more than anything, absolutely convinced me that in retrospect, I now cannot believe that as Doctor Who fans, we even were willing to accept that he would have done that, that he would have actually pushed the button that annihilated. Forget the Daleks, because even the Daleks he's refused to do in the past, classic genesis of the Daleks, he wouldn't Mm -hmm. do it. But certainly Gallifrey. And then when you put it into a perspective we never had before, the children, the innocent people on Gallifrey, how could we ever have believed or accepted the idea that our hero had ever reached a point where he hadn't pulled the rabbit out of the hat and come up with the amazing plan at the last minute? That's what he does. And then eight years later, Moffat comes along and says, you know what? We've got to fix that because at the core of this character, he would not make that choice. And I agree he would not make that choice. And I think this was a celebration of joy, of finding a way out of war, of peace being the most important thing, of saving lives instead of condemning them. And in a way, it inverted everything from the past eight years of the show, but it did it beautifully. I also think it did it in a way that actually does not overwrite what happened. No, not at all. Because unlike some stories he's done where it's like, oh, we're rewriting time, I don't subscribe to the belief that there was a timeline in which the war doctor, the John Hurt doctor, ever pressed the button. We're seeing for the first time what was the only outcome of the time war. It's just that everybody thinks Gallifrey was destroyed, and even his other selves later still remember doing that rather than saving it. That's how they're able to preserve the safety of Gallifrey. So I don't believe it's a rewriting of time. It's that we're for the first time being shown what actually happened. And it's, I just think it's a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. And when you look at what the doctor said in, in Dalek or, you know, the, the, how he saw it happen, he made it happen, you know, destroying all these Daleks. Well, he did. Mm-hmm. Even from his muddled memories, Gallifrey's gone. There was a massive explosion as we saw. And right. the Daleks were wiped out. So f- from his perspective, it really did happen. Yeah. And so therefore, the the only real tragedy here 
is that we know that the ninth, well, to stick with the original numbering, because that's another whole thing, (laughs) the ninth, tenth, and for almost his entire life, eleventh doctors live with a false memory of having committed genocide that they didn't commit. But then that's part of preserving Gallifrey's safety in isolation, wherever it is. And I just think that's that's a absolutely brilliant thing that in a way turns around and says, you know what, in a way the whole idea of him being the last man standing in the time war and doing what he did, and we all just kind of went with that. And it's like, okay, last son of Gallifrey, that just doesn't feel right. That's not Doctor Who. And in a way now looking back, I think, yeah, that's that's kind of true. I'm kind of surprised we rolled with that for so long. And now he's the Doctor again. And it's uh, it's an incredible piece of work. There's also a lot of people, of course, that have pointed out, well, does this not conflict with David Tennant's final story, The End of Time, in which we see Gallifrey emerge from the time lock and Rassilon and the High Council. But if you watch the show again, I, I think he did this incredible job of serving all the continuity that's necessary. There's a specific reference there where the War Council that we stay with in this story says – the High Council have their own plans, and hell with that. Forget mm-hmm. that. Which means that if you want to figure out a timeline, the Doctor takes the moment because he's heard Rassilon's planning that final sanction. That's what we know from the past stories. Well, then that means the end of time takes place. The Master forces Rassilon and the High Council back. Meanwhile, at the same time, over here, the Day of the Doctor is happening. And Gallifrey is shoved away into safety. Of course, it also means theoretically that some of that high council and the master are there as well. But we want some of them back anyway. So you know, they'll, they'll, they'll keep until we have a reason to bring them back again. Well, and I assume the war council was in Arcadia, wasn't it? Where are uh, That's the other thing. I'm actually, trying to geographically figure out where they were located. Were they actually supposed to be in Arcadia? I guess so. And I then, don't know. Yeah, in a bunker? I'm not sure. I guess so, because it looks like they're underground, and they seem to be like right in the thick of it. So I guess that's possible, although I'm not sure that we're ever really clear on that. And then, of course, some people were saying, well, where's uh, the war doctor go when he goes to that cabin? Well, he's out there in the in the wastelands, but he's still in Gallifrey. So where the Shabogans might have been. <laughs> oh, that would have been awesome if we had saw, seen some yeah, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't see Shabogans, but you notice that uh, Rose, well, the not Rose, the the embodiment of the moment that decides to choose out of the entire history of the Doctor's timeline, past, present, and future, the image of Rose as the likeliest image to be able to reach him, uh, which I thought was an interesting touch. She's wearing an outfit that looks kind of Shabogan-like, actually. It's it's very rough and and uh, native looking. Mm-hmm. She's also a little bit like Idris, so it, it has it has this nice touch of Gallifreyan technology has this tendency to create personalities that it's shab- that. shabby chic, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And as you were saying earlier, that the solution is a peaceful solution. Uh, it was a nice parallel to have the Zygon story uh, have a peaceful solution. And, right, uh, but not in the same way. But just it was it was interesting to show how Earth contend was you know dealt with something, and also how Gallifrey and how the Doctor would would deal with something. But yeah, absolutely. And and the thing, and, and again, I've seen some people uh, actually complaining about, hey, it dropped the Zygon story at the end. No, it didn't. It completely ended the Zygon story. They're negotiating a peace treaty. We don't need to see where that's going. The entire point of that was that it's a metaphor for the Doctor's own choice. Besides the cute aspects of it 
It brings back a monster that we haven't seen except for one and only one time in 1975. So if you want to have another little great anniversary bit, think about the fact that the anniversary special does that. It brings back a classic monster from one and only one appearance, but one that has still loomed large in the history of the show because of its unique design and how much everybody remembers it so well. So there you get the Zygons. Two, we know that David Tennant always said the Zygons were his favorite monster. He never got to meet them. Well, guess what? He gets to have a Zygon adventure after all. That was a beautiful touch. And then it's that great idea of taking one of the cliche classic Doctor Who whispering monsters and showing us that, well, they might actually be capable of doing something other than destroying or killing or invading we might be able to find a solution. And I think the most telling moment of that was when the two Osgoods are speaking to one another. Osgood, by the way, seeming a little bit too easily like uh, maybe being a, a cliched uh, fan avatar that sometimes seemed a little unfair, but that's all right. She, she was still very good herself, so all right. But Inhaler, really? Um, <laughs> not everybody who likes a science fiction show has asthma. But anyway, um, in that one negotiation scene at the end where the one of them hands the other the inhaler that means in that moment if you followed where the inhaler went they know now which one's human and which one's zygon even though their memories are wiped and they agree mutually not to say anything which means that the zygon of the two of them is equally willing to let peace have a chance to work that says even more than the negotiation itself it says that they're not all monsters and i thought that was a beautiful little touch and and then, of course, it's the event that allows the war doctor to see that that's what he should be striving for. Not the final shot in a war, but a way out of the war. Although destroying millions of Daleks in the, in the process is okay. Yeah, but you know, that's going to happen. <laughs> they're Daleks. That's, they're Daleks. <laughs> that's going to happen no matter what you do. So you got to accept that. Uh, you know, one genocide is okay. Two, yeah. not so much. Yeah, it's Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right um but and and i remember we were talking about the soft mic but one of the things we also said of course we got to also give credit to john hurt who is a phenomenal actor anyway in anything he appears in one of those people that's always a joy to see turn up with genre roles that stretch back decades and decades and he comes in and has to he has the burden of having to create an endearing and dramatic incarnation of the doctor that we have never known before and make us believe that he's that man that we've gotten so used to with all these other incarnations and he not only does that but he's completely different from what you'd think the war doctor would have been mm -hmm. instead of being stern and dark and unappealing and gritty it's almost like in response to that lifetime of experience he's lighthearted He's he's quippy in his own way, and he's fun. And you're the one that brought that up when we were talking about this before we started recording. He's he's fun, and it's not what you'd expect, but it does absolutely, at least to me anyway, and I guess to you, it does definitely sell. That's the doctor we're talking about there. Right. He clearly still is the same man. Well, and it's also interesting to bring him in as sort of this outside observer who can provide so much self-referential commentary about the show and about Matt and about David, uh, about their portrayals of the character. 
you know, the whole, that great line of, do you have to talk like children? What is it that makes you ashamed <laughs> of being grown up? You know, I just, oh, I love that stuff. It was just wonderful. Are you capable of speaking without waving your hands around? And, <laughs> and my, and probably my favorite, which is, you know, why they're pointing the sonic screwdrivers at everything. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a tool. It's a, it's scientific, a scientific instrument. instrument. <laughs> it's not a water pistol. <laughs> what are you going to do? Build a cabinet? Yeah. And, 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 but the thing is, that's, that also to me was amazing. That he wrote a story, Moffat wrote a story that, in some sense, through the John Hurt Doctor, actually, well, not condemns, but has so much fun with poking holes through some of the conventions, some of the ways the Doctor has been portrayed, that has been an intrinsic part of the new show since it came back, and certainly in the last two incarnations. And to be that self-aware... And, I mean, he even undercut one of his signature lines when, like you said about talking like children, when Matt Smith says, timey-wimey. Mm-hmm. And and John Hurt's doctor is like, timey what? <laughs> and and Tennant actually feels like he has to protect himself. Which, by the way, also, going back to the three doctors, is that beautiful little uh, touch that also makes you feel like you're watching the classic show. That weird thing in the three doctors where the second and third defer to the first as if he's the elder when he's the youngest of them. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is happening here because John Hurt's doctor is younger than the other two, and yet they keep looking to him like he's the elder. And when he criticizes Matt Smith's doctor, Tennant's reaction is, I don't know where he gets his stuff from. He's, <laughs> he's like he's trying to protect himself. But, the, but I was just so impressed that it deconstructs so much of the, the jokiness, the attitude, the stuff that has been so much a part of what the doctor has been. And then, as you just said, you know, why are you so afraid of being grown up? To do that consistently throughout the show, to poke fun at yourself, and then to turn it into something meaningful and thematic. Because after all those jokes, suddenly it's like, oh, now you realize the reason for all of that is that they have become like children because they're running from the adulthood that they felt led to that horrible decision that day. It suddenly actually justifies all of the childish behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's so simultaneously, it's self-referential, it's self-aware. I really respected that. It was an incredible job to make it funny and then also make it meaningful at the same time. And to carry that thought on, it's interesting how it's, it's the 10th Doctor who remembers the number of children. And the 11th has basically pushed that out of his memories. Right. Again, running away from his adult responsibilities. Yeah. And, and one of the, one of the nagging little things, not, not a huge, I mean, these are all minor. If I were to bring up anything that's negative, it's so minor in this case. One of the nagging things, one of the things that kind of, um, looms behind the scenes of this whole thing, which is what would have been like if Christopher Eccleston had returned? In some respect, it feels like a three doctor story that would have been played out with the three new doctors new series doctors in many ways though the story that we got was one that i can't see working with eccleston because everything about i know there are people that disagree but for me rose absolutely makes it clear that it's post-regeneration um yeah all those pictures clive has why can't they have happened after rose or right before he leaves at the end and then comes back and tells her travels in time he's got a time machine people (laughs) that could happen later (laughs) But when he looks in the mirror and sees the ears, which, of course, they then really underscore as being what it is, post-regenerative, because they have hurt, make the reference to hope the ears 
aren't as conspicuous this time. So clearly, they're kind of nailing down the idea that Rose was post-regeneration. That means Eccleston's doctor could not be the one that was in the time war because he had just regenerated from the big decision. And we know that Paul McGann is not because we got him back in Night of the Doctor. It never felt right that he would have been anyway. He seemed a little bit too romantic and joyous himself to have become that person. So it feels right that there's another one between the two. And it just works better that way. But it does make you wonder, if Eccleston had come back, would we have gotten a slightly different story and how that would have worked? The one thing I'm wondering about is when the moment refers to 10 as the one who regrets and 11 as the one who forgets, I wonder what we'd say about the ninth. Because it does feel a little bit like this story forgets that he existed, although he's clearly there. Certainly at the end we see him. Uh, so I, I'd be curious, is like, is Eccleston's doctor also one that regrets, or will we put it another way? Maybe the one who remembers. The one who remembers? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, you're probably right. I am a writer, after all. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you written some Doctor Who stuff? I have. Oh, me? Let's talk about that. No. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, maybe that's true. Yeah. And he's struggling with that during his very short incarnation and then it continues beyond that but yeah mm-hmm. so so in many ways i feel like the, the, all the decisions that were made in this just feel right it's it's sometimes odd to feel like uh you could say that but yeah it just feels like this did things right for celebrating an anniversary it didn't go as it went and it also gave us pieces of the time where we'd never seen and that's always been something that's been uh, a little bit of a fear how much do you want to see of that be careful what you wish for, that kind of fan idea. You want to see the time war and all its glory and horror, but really, they could never deliver on it. So when it comes back again, it's like, uh, is this really going to work? And yet, when we see the time war in this, it looked great. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. great, great not in the way you want to see the destruction, but great <laughs> in the way that it lived up in, in the slices we saw. It lived up entirely to the enormity of what we would think is going on. I thought it looked fantastic. And it made sense, and it did not feel in any way like they were shooting in like a closet and a green screen. Although I'm sure some of that was like that. It it felt right, and and just enough to really give you the sense of how big that event was. And another thing that I I wanted to mention about the the special is, and I you I'm sure you've touched on this already, but it was it was so hopeful and it was so positive, even when people like Unit. And, and of course, the War Council, even when they are interacting with the Doctor, nobody's pointing guns. Nobody's threatening to kill him. It was That's, like this really – everybody was in, a, in their own weird way welcoming the Doctor. And it, we haven't really seen that in a long time. There's been such – you expect one of those situations where Unit's going to call him in and, well, he's the reason that the Zygons invaded, so put him under arrest. And all these horrible things would happen. But no, they bring him in for, for help, for assistance. And it just yeah. – it was wonderful to see that kind of stuff again. Only in the few first few minutes and a couple revisitations here and there throughout the episode do we ever really get to sort of a darker – an analysis of terrible decisions and things like that. But for the most part, what a wonderful, positive, heroic adventure that was. It absolutely was. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier was all the little things. I mean, obviously, for a 50th anniversary, you'd expect it to have, as, as they so often put it, many kisses to the past. And and the, oh, the ones they came up with, 
some of them were absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. And and besides all the little things, the little tiny things that, that rewarded anyone um, that's followed for – oh, here's another thing that I also feel is like here's one of those decisions that we were kind of uh, admittedly complaining about a little bit um, before we recorded this episode. Like the fact that William Russell's still around, the, the actor who played Ian Chesterton, and he appears in something we'll probably talk about in a minute. Uh, he has a cameo appearance in an adventure in time and space, the the docudrama all about the the birth of the show. And one of the things that came up at the time was, yeah, but he's here. He's here right now. Why wouldn't you put him in the 50th anniversary special? Well, I'm sure there's still people that feel like that would still have been a nice idea. But I kind of liked it when the show opened. First, we got the amazing original credits, well, recreation of the original credits. The policeman, the shadow of the policeman leading into the present day. It's Cole Hill School, Totter's Yard's around the corner. And Clara's working at the school. And you see on the sign that Ian Chesterton is, what is is on the board Chair, of governors? Chairman of the, chairman of the governors, yeah. Right. And it also referenced Anthony Coburn on there, too. Yeah. Who was what again? Was he script editor? Uh, I'm Somebody's going to be screaming at me that I'm getting that wrong. But uh, but anyway, but Ian Chesterton is on there. So that means he's there. He's there. Maybe not that day, but he's there. Why can't he show up? Well, I do like the idea that it didn't do that because there was that beautiful poetic reference in Sarah Jane Adventures a few years ago where she lists a bunch of other companions that, he, that she's checked up on over the years. And she mentions this thing about how there are these two teachers, Ian and Barbara, who are out there, and they've apparently never aged. And it's a beautiful notion that somehow, for whatever reason, in their travels, they did not age. Well, if William Russell showed up, that would shatter that idea. I kind of like the idea that somewhere in Cole Hill School, right at that moment at the beginning of Day of the Doctor, there's a young Ian walking around. And Barbara. And, and Barbara, yeah. And so I was okay with that. And so... From references to that, to the wall of companions in the Black Archive, including the incredibly confusing and bizarre picture of Sarah Kingdom standing (laughs) in front of Mike Yates with an eye patch. There's fanfic waiting to be written. Um, Oh, I'm sure it's already written. I'm sure it's already written. There were beautiful moments like David Tennant seemed to be given most of the classic lines being reiterated. Mm-hmm. He does Patrick Troughton's trademark, you've redecorated, I don't like it, line from three and five doctors. He does Richard Herndl's first doctor line from the five doctors, it's good to know my future is in safe hands when he leaves. He even does his own final line, I don't want to go. I don't go. Which becomes a joke, and there's, there. I did read somebody online saying how like almost vicious and... And clever it was that Moffat made sure that what might still be Tennant's last line ever in the show is the same line. <laughs> you know, if he never comes back again, that's it. And doesn't, um, doesn't the Eleven say, oh, he says that all the time or something? He says that all the time, yeah. Um, it was just amazing. And and getting to the two of them, in some respects, it's so similar to the Three Doctors. Of course, Hartnell wasn't that involved because of health and all that. Anybody who knows the story of that, it really winds up – it's like a, a second and third Doctor story. It's really two. And it does show you how difficult it is. you know. And yet we do get a full-on three in the sense that all three of them interact. And boy, when they're marching together in a line at the end through the painting and, and coming in to save the day, it was one of many beautiful moments. But it's also the byplay between Tennant and Smith. They are absolutely amazing together. Mm-hmm. They fit perfectly. They have the the little bit of jabbing at each other, 
but they also seem to have what you rarely see with the other ones, which is an absolute joy at being together and being able to work together that we've rarely seen with other multi-doctor stories. These two are far more in sync than they are out of sync, and they were an amazing team. They were just perfect. Sand shoes and shinny. <laughs> shinny and grandpa. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, right. <laughs> and, I mean, all that stuff is there, but when it comes down to it, and they both pop on glasses, and it's like, oh, and and sit down and cross their legs and arms at the same. I mean, oh, yeah. they they are really so in sync with each other and happy to be together, and that's also part of that joy. It's not bickering to the point where it gets uncomfortable. They're happy to be together and saving the day. And I thought Tennant really – and you know another thing we talked about a little bit off mic too is that in some of the promotional material for this, David Tennant in, in interviews and other things, <laughs> he occasionally looked like – I don't know. Maybe they caught him at the end of a long shooting day or something. I think you said that. He just looked like he was a little bit exhausted. <laughs> and, and maybe it was the day they were doing the horse scene. Who knows? But when you actually watch him in the episode – from the moment he arrives on screen, he's entirely back in the part. He is so invested in it. I have obviously watched it several times. If you watch him on the periphery of scenes that he's not even directly involved in, which is always a good thing, by the way, when you watch a show, you can see actors that are truly invested in their work as opposed to those who aren't. A longstanding family joke, by the way, is that we used to, as a family, we used to watch Friends all the years Friends was on. And this sounds like it's coming out of left field, but years into the show, we started noticing something. Whenever the camera wasn't directly on Courtney Cox or she didn't have a line, she'd shut down completely. If you watch her in the background of a scene, her face goes utterly blank. She's not playing her character. She's not in the moment at all. It's actually very disturbing to watch because you realize she just doesn't care. She drops it completely, even when she's visible on screen if you watch an actor that really knows what they're doing they always keep their character alive and i notice for instance moments like where matt smith is center stage running his tardis tenant keeps moving around in the background crossing his arms letting him have his moment but it also looks like this is a doctor it's like i'm not going to get up in this guy's face it's his tardis it's his time he's there he's still playing the 10th doctor every moment he's there and it was a joy to see I just, uh, you talked about friends. Our podcast just talked about friends. Yeah. I'm in shock. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We are now officially shutting down the G2V podcast. (laughs) And coming up on our Seinfeld episode next month, we'll be talking (laughs) all about the series from the origins all the way up to the anyway. Anyways, did Kramer come to that in depth? But anyway, yeah. So, um, well, the the, the <laughs> what what <laughs> that made sense. No, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Right. Uh, but anyway, let's wrap up Doctor Who. So, uh, so Day of the Doctor, as uh, as you can probably all tell, uh, Arnold and I both really enjoyed it, and oh. even though we went into it with you know some fear and some concern, but I think uh, we were rewarded with a really really special program. Oh, we also have to mention a couple other things, though, too, is that um, 
it does it does an, an incredible it's, it's hard to keep coming up with words i keep wanting to say amazing brilliant it does an incredible job of even resolving things that aren't necessary to resolve for years and years after the shakespeare code people are always arguing about why is elizabeth after her uh, after the doctor at the end of that and we got a little bit of an idea and end of time but here it is full circle everything makes sense yeah his relationship with with uh, Elizabeth, um, and the other thing, of course, is uh, the curator. Oh the, yes. Uh, well, actually, before we get to the curator, I do want to mention one other thing. We've been we've repeatedly talked about how positive this thing was and how hopeful it was. And one thing that really stuck with me was how the war doctor welcomed his regeneration. It was so beautiful. Yeah. He really yeah. just, he steps back and he says it's, you know, he admits it's time that he's worn out and he just, he's looking forward again, being very, very hopeful to what's coming next. And I thought that was just so beautiful. Especially since he spends a lot of the episode not really approving of his future selves. Right. <laughs> then seeing that they are the doctor and that that is something. So all that time that the episode spends seemingly undercutting the new show. When everybody, by the way, including us, felt like, oh, the 50th anniversary, but this is really just going to be a celebration of the new show. It's very aware of the fact that it's, you know, it's looking at both the, the good and the bad about that. And then he's happy. And, and he does the wearing a bit thin line, which references Hartnell. Um, and it's just it, it, everything about it is, is a celebration of life. The, the round old joke was great. The round things. <laughs> the round things. What are they for? No idea. No idea. <laughs> That's great. And, and the, going back to what I was saying earlier, what Moffat said, that it was one of those things in interviews where as someone that's occasionally found some issue with some of his storytelling, he often say in interviews, well, you know, you can't just make the 50th anniversary a celebration. It's got to move the story forward. And that I found potentially troublesome like really i mean shouldn't it be a celebration well it absolutely was on every level and it also was exactly what he said it should be moving forward because what he does after 50 years of storytelling is end it with the idea that now after 50 years of running away from home the doctor now is running to home and i thought that was an absolutely beautiful idea it's interesting too by the way because it kind of is a little bit like what the original plans for the reboot were back in the 90s that eventually led to the TV movie Mm -hmm. where he was on a quest to find his father. But the idea that he's now, like he says, uh, looking for home, going back home the long way around, I thought that was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, you couldn't ask for a better way to, to celebrate a half century and set up another half century. Absolutely. And now speaking of round things, the round things, let's talk about the round things we saw on the wall of the museum and a particular character that makes a little cameo at the end of the story. In the gallery, as part, it's part of the undergallery, isn't it? Or, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. Right. Well, yeah, I guess it is. Um, yeah, I'd have to look again. Well, I've got another reason to watch it is no problem. Yeah, it is uh, the gallery. And uh, we we see the Gallifrey Falls painting, which has been at the crux of the entire story and along the entire. No, no, no. Hang on. You know what? Because it shows there's an establishing shot of the of the museum out on oh, the, the outside. Museum. Right. So it's in the museum. It's now hanging in the in the in the muse- museum. In the museum proper. Right. Yeah. Okay. And in that room, though, where Gallifrey is, the only piece of art on display, 
the entire wall there has both the hexagonal pattern that has become synonymous with the TARDIS in the new series and the roundels that are synonymous with the TARDIS in the classic series. It looks very much like a TARDIS wall in that gallery, which makes it all the more interesting when the doctor meets the curator of the museum. And in probably one of the most beautiful moments, the entire thing, if not the most, it's Tom Baker. Absolutely, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, playing the doctor again. And so much of the dialogue in that sets up a very clear way to interpret the events of that scene, although, once again, there's plenty of debate about it out there. As we, <laughs> But the curator shows up, and right after Matt Smith's doctor says, you know, one day in the future I could retire, I could be the curator of this place, and then in comes the curator, and it's a very aged, but still very vital and clearly as, as bonkers as ever, Tom Baker, <laughs> fourth doctor. Ah, but he's not. Because one of the things he specifically says is in the future, you might find yourself revisiting some of those faces, but just the old favorites. So the implication here is that the curator is a far, far future incarnation of the doctor that has decided to deliberately revisit the fourth doctor's physical form, which is an absolutely, again, it's impossible to come up with words for this. It's beautiful touch. And he suggests that he is, again, when he says you have a lot to do, he knows all the things that lay ahead of the Doctor from this point on and gives him the mission, in a sense, of seeking out his home again. And it's just, how could you not tear up when oh, that yeah. scene happens? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, I did read one thing online that was like one of those, you know, I think one of the things you and I have often talked about, not necessarily on the show, is how... Uh, the internet has given rise to an era of such excessive hyperbole that it's sometimes annoying. Like every article on the web is, here's the 10 things you didn't know about this. Well, maybe we did. Some of us might have known it. Or, you know, here's the best cat uh, animation you're going to see all day. <laughs> if I watch 12 of them, I might see another one I like more. And yet one of the things was, you know, another one of those cliches is, you know, we're going to blow your mind, mind blown. It's like, hmm. Sometimes my mind's not all that blown. <laughs> However, this was one that might just reach into that category. I always find it incredibly exciting and, and just an amazing little extra bonus when a writer can come along decades after something was done and add additional meaning to it in a way that was never intended but was there to be picked up. You've done that. Mm-hmm. Not, not to focus too, too much on that to sound hypey, but... You've done that when you did I Davros. And and so to see that happen is always a joy. And in, and I read something online where somebody said, well, he could be a future incarnation of the Doctor, but given that the fourth Doctor's regeneration was so odd that it involved a collapse of the universe and time, and there was that watcher in between, between the fourth and the fifth, what if the fourth doctor's form was extracted from the moment of the regeneration and brought forward in time and allowed to age, and that this is actually the fourth doctor existing on his own? And it was like, well, that sounds a little complicated. And they said, ah, except for one thing. The fourth doctor's last words are, it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Mm-hmm. And now we have a whole different context for what the moment means. And if he, in that final scene of his regeneration, was aware of the future, then maybe he was referring to the moment 
And I thought, wow, obviously, there's no way in hell they planned that. <laughs> but it's a beautiful little idea that if you want to think that way, you could add a whole different extra level of significance to Logopolis. Yeah, you could, that- you could also extrapolate on that uh, a little bit and say that maybe that wasn't even really the doctor. Maybe that was the moment. Yes. The, the Tom Baker's appearance, that that's actually the moment doing another type of projection. It could be. It so. could be. Because we don't know where the moment winds up. Nope. Really, you know, I mean, theoretically, is it still in Gallifrey? Well, maybe not. Maybe because why would they leave that there to be potentially used again? So maybe it's maybe it's an artifact in that museum. That's also a possibility. Mm-hmm. No matter how you you, you look at it, though, um, having him in it was a great touch, especially since it was done in a way that didn't violate the reality of the story. And gives you the opportunity to see him in the way that you would most want to interpret it. And that he is, for all intents and purposes, the doctor or something like the doctor. And that's all the real. Like he says, maybe it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Gallifrey is now like Handor the Bottled City in Superman. (laughs) One last thing before we move on from the day of the doctor. And this is uh, maybe a little bit of a downer, but I think it's important to point out. The ratings have come out for the day. This was simulcast globally. It actually just received a Guinness record for the largest simulcast of a show. They they had uh, Stephen Moffat and uh, I believe Matt Smith and Jenna Coleman were present at an event to accept this record uh, officially in uh, saying that. But what's interesting is that although it was globally simulcast, it was this astonishing pop culture event in the UK specifically. Day of the Doctor did not win the day ratings wise. It topped out uh, or rather averaged at about 10 million viewers the winner of the day was strictly come dancing which went i think up to around 11 appropriately enough but what what was a little sad about that was this was the 50th anniversary special the highest ratings this new series has ever done was when voyage of the dam that christmas special aired that year and i think it was around 13 million but there's no reason that any of us wouldn't think that in the UK itself, celebrating 50 years of Doctor Who, old fans and new fans alike, a global event the likes of which we've never seen before, that it should surely have brought in the most record-shattering viewership of any episode of the show. And to hear that it didn't even match its own top rating since the show has returned and lost to a reality contest was kind of disheartening but i think it says less about how wonderful the day of the doctor is and doctor who and a lot more about the pop culture landscape and television today mm-hmm. which is not good i mean it's not it's not a happy thing but it's uh it, it was a little sobering there to see that there's i would have imagined that for the 50th anniversary you'd be hearing astonishing numbers and instead a bunch of people dancing did better and that's a little bit of a shame. But around the world, I think we're still looking at something that was unprecedented in its scope. And that's that's wonderful. Now, it is interesting to note the, the 10 million viewer rating and how 10 million is what s- sort of uh, uh, solidified Doctor Who on, on the screens after the premiere of the Daleks going back to the 1963 or going back to the, the launch of the series. And uh, that would beautifully segue right into... 
another wonderful gift that we all got for this 50th anniversary celebration, and that was the Mark Gatiss penned An Adventure in Space and Time, starring David Bradley as uh, William Hartnell, and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful gift and a celebration of early days of British television, and also an examination and a, and a really intimate look at old age and illness and just a very heartwarming film that I think a lot of people, even beyond Doctor Who fans, would really, really enjoy. Every adventure begins with one vision. We want to do a science fiction serial. Travel back in time to see how a show defied the odds. Cavemen and doctors and, and disappearing bloody police boxes. It'll never work. To become a legend. Doctor Who? Who? David Bradley stars as the first Doctor, William Hardnell. An Adventure in Space and Time premieres Friday at 9, part of Doctor Who Takeover Week, only on BBC America. It had a lot of emotional depth that I did not expect. I'm not saying I didn't think he could do it. I, I just think that, well, when we heard about it, it was like, well, this is going to be like sort of a docudrama, dramatized look at the way Doctor Who began. I didn't really know the extent to which they were going to create something so warm and moving and like you said it's also really it, it, it could touch people that has it has no association with doctor who because you're also seeing the idea of like an older man getting one last chance to do something meaningful but then also seeing times passing him by it's tragic and heartbreaking and and also again like the day the doctor also joyful and hopeful about the future and there's a lot in that movie that i did not expect to see on that level, I thought it was going to tick off the fan references like, OK, we've recreated the kind. Of course, that stuff is absolutely beautiful to look at. You know, it recreates the console room. We're going to see some characters from the Web Planet. We're going to see the classic Daleks again. And it does go through those beats. The movie basically begins on the day that he's about to shoot his regeneration in 1966 and then flashes back and shows us the first three years and watches him go from the gruff sergeant stereotype he had established to a children's hero with so many that the scene in the park, for instance, where he, he instantly transforms into the doctor for a group of children and leads them through the, <laughs> through the park. And it's just, I, it, it was, it was an incredible that like you said before we recorded this, that we got at the very least two incredible gifts for the 50th anniversary, three if you count Night of the Doctor, and this was absolutely a gift. It was not only a gift about here's how exciting and uh, untested and dramatic it was to start something like this at a time where no one knew what was going to come next, but it's really also an intimate look at this man. And of course, it's a dramatization, so you need to take it with a grain of salt. We'll never know what the real person was like, and I'm sure a lot of things are, you know, orchestrated to tell you a story. But it's a it's a really moving story, and it's still dealing with a lot of things that are are just sort of common amongst anybody on this planet. Again, you know, going back to dealing with uh, somebody who's sort of past their prime, but is still hopeful about a future. It deals with uh, family relationships. It deals with illness, as I said earlier on. I think there's just a lot of little things in there that are, are really personal touches that all of us can relate to beautifully. And it's also a story about Verity Lambert. Oh, yeah. And and how she shatters expectations and breaks through the wall and, and is a woman, and Jewish, by the way. They actually reference Jewish, which I was actually particularly happy about. <laughs> uh, but, you know, 
so many by the standards of a particularly conservative and conventional organization, so many strikes against her in trying to become someone of note and in a leadership role. And she takes it and she makes it into something. And sure, there are plenty of other people involved, but this movie sort of focuses in on the relationship between her and Hartnell, which becomes this sort of bond, almost like a father-daughter kind of bond, really, that's, that's sad when you see it hit broken when she moves on before he does. Also should give note to Brian Cox, the, you know, another reliable character actor, Brian Cox, who's been in huge Hollywood productions like X-Men and other things, playing Sidney Newman, the, the Canadian head of drama at the BBC, who gives her the shot and manages to side with her on some occasionally shaky moments uh, and, and sees the show become the success that we know it's going to be. And it's really, it's an incredible piece of work, too, in its own right. It, it, like you were saying earlier, too, even just from the standard of anybody that's a student of early television, there's so much eye candy in this. The, the uh, camera technology, the way they're shooting. I think you were saying to me uh, before we were recording the, the craziness when they're shooting the pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything's going horribly awry. Uh, it really captures a moment in pop culture and in time that goes way beyond just Doctor Who. And if you've if you've never seen the pilot, it does it actually is still in existence. Surprisingly, uh, you can you can watch it and you can see some of those oddities happen and the sounds in the background and the, of course the doors that keep opening and closing <laughs> and that's all visited in the in this movie and it's really it's terrific. And even if you ha- even if you don't know it, you have you've never seen it, it's just. It just shows what, as you said, what a nightmare that production was right from the outset and how it got repaired and they did what they could with it and made it you know, wonderful once they reshot. Now, shall we talk about the two things that you thought and that I half agree are the, the two minor weaknesses in the movie? Um, we can, although I've come to accept them more. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, well, then- absolutely. Let's let's do that. Well, I well this was well you you started because you had said um, I agree with you on one of them, so go ahead. I mean, to some extent. <laughs> well, except for those are major spoilers. I mean, at least um, one of them is. Yeah. All right. But do well, we not worry about that and assume that well, people we, have seen? Well, we rarely have in the past. Okay, look, if you haven't <laughs> seen, uh, pause this right now. Go watch the thing. Come back, and we'll wait for you. All right, you back? Good. Good. So anyway. That end bit where uh, Patrick Troughton comes in. What's the actor's name again? Uh, Reese Shearsmith. Right. We get him showing up. And actually, I've actually changed my mind a little on it, too. I felt a little like you you had said when you watched it, you felt it was a bit weak because he didn't quite inhabit the role. I And I get the impression it was it was the very reasonable assumption, and I'm just I'm just guessing, that what probably happened there was, you know what, you can either do this like a cartoonish caricature of Patrick Troughton to make sure it's exactly like him, or you just play the part and try to pepper it a little bit and do a more realistic interpretation. Except that in that moment, what you really need is somebody just doing Patrick Troughton. Yes. So it kind of doesn't work entirely. However, I've seen it again, and he does the thing with his hands. He has a little bit of an eyebrow furrow at one point. He does it pretty much. It, it, it's there. It's just maybe that, like, uh, I, I guess 
What I think I would say is David Bradley seems like he spent his entire life aging to the point where he's ready to be William Hart. <laughs> that you're so amazed by that that when he shows up as Trout and it's like, oh, we don't have an exact doppelganger as Trout too. So I think he kind of suffers in comparison to David Bradley having won, having won you over the whole time. Right. And one of the glorious things about the movie, and I think I mentioned this to you, you know, a few days ago, is that as you're watching it, you start out and you begin, you struggle a little bit with accepting David Bradley as, as William Hartnell. Right. But as it moves on, at some point, it just clicks, and you just accept him. And when you see him on camera and with the with the uh, the wig and the costume and everything, I'm sorry, but it's William Hartnell. I yeah. don't know when it happens, but it happens. And so you're so convinced that what you're watching is William Hartnell at this point that when Reese Shearsmith shows up with his usual sort of higher pitched voice and mm-hmm. a wig that I don't think is particularly convincing. <laughs> Um, it's very difficult to accept it at that point. Now, granted, it might be one of those things where if he had had, you know, 60 minutes prior to, to embrace the character, we might have accepted it a little bit more. But I found it a little bit jarring. And I still, I, I do see what you, I agree with you. He does, he does at least portray the character enough so that you know that it's Patrick Troughton and you accept it and it's fine, move on. But I don't know. There is a, wasn't there a one line that, that he says about the one actor in the country? Who could play the part? You're the one actor who could do it, and Troughton, Troughton in the in that moment says, "Oh, couldn't they get him?" Or something like that. Yeah, yeah and in a weird way, that's almost a subtle. <laughs> you know, it's it's subtly picking at casting of Reese Shearsmith, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe there was somebody else out there who I would have been a little bit more sold with, but um, you know, maybe would have sold the role more to me. But I I accept it. It's fine. Move on. Okay, now number two on that list. Now, now the number two, which is of course a big one because it's, it was such a surprise for so many people, is the appearance of Matt Smith, right, as the as the, the eleventh Doctor at the console. And at the very end, as David Bradley's Hartnell puts his hands on the console, and by the way, one of those beautiful things, there's so many things in this movie we didn't really talk about because we've spent pro- probably reasonably more time on the day of the Doctor. But there's so much beautiful writing that Gatiss did in this movie, like the fact that, it, as you've kept saying, because you've been watching it a few times over, yeah. it starts off with that, you know, move along, sir, you're, you're in the way. Oh. That, you know, that great double meaning stuff of like, you know, this is William Hartnell realizing he's like, they're getting rid of him. He's in the way, but it's the policeman saying he's in the way on, on the road. So you get that great, you know, double meaning. And there's so much of that kind of stuff going on. And, and I think you mentioned it first, but I loved it too. The, the fact that Hartnell takes so to heart, the fact that he should know what all the controls on the console do. Yeah. And that late in the series, when clearly so much of the production team have changed, he's fighting for, I can't do that because the door control is over there. But in this beautiful little way of conflating Hartnell with his doctor, Hartnell himself knows what the controls all do because he's the only one on the set. And this may not be true. I don't know. But it's beautiful for the movie. He's the only one on the set who knows where the switch is inside that turns the rotor on or the, you know, well, what we tend to now call the time rotor, the column moving up and down. And in that last scene, reaches under and turns it on one last time. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's, he, he himself knows what they do. And he's standing there ready to shoot his regeneration. He looks over at the other panel. And in what uh, probably was a mind-blown moment for many people, <laughs> Matt Smith is standing there smiling back at him. And 
Bradley's Hartnell has this absolutely angelic looking smile. Never would I think that that's a word I would apply to David Bradley in any role I've ever seen him. But he does. He's so warm. And that's another thing. Bradley is so often played scruffy, unlikable in many ways, like Hartnell's career himself. It's actually kind of interesting how the, that parallels happen. And now he's so endearing and lovable in this. Mm-hmm. And he has that angelic kind of smile. And that moment is all about Hartnell knowing, yes, he has to move on, but his legacy is secure and he's created something that will stand the test of time. And it's a beautiful, poetic moment. And for a lot of people, including you, I think, originally, you felt like it was a step too far or, or like just a little out of place with the rest of it? Yeah, I did. And But I've since, since uh, I've, I've grown to accept it. Uh, I think it's a really nice and clean way of showing that Hartnell knew that what he was working on was going to stay. It was going to remain and handing over the reins didn't mean the end of the show. Uh, and so, you know, it's not necessarily him having this supernatural image of the future. It's just him looking to the side and seeing what lies ahead. And there's also been uh, some interviews with Gatiss where uh, he's pointed out that they shot that scene in such a way that any time down the line in the years to come when they want to revisit this movie because of course the events of 63 to 66 aren't going to change and you can always go back and use this as a tribute to the birth of the show they set up that scene in such a way so that they can always uh insert whatever the whoever the current doctor is and change it which means they absolutely have that in mind that down the line one day if they repeat this they will probably put peter capaldi in that scene or whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. So we could have many different versions of this movie uh, going down the years as time keeps moving on and, and other doctors take over. And it's just, yeah, it's just this nice little symbolic moment. I can see where people felt like it was a little cheesy and a little too far, but I have to admit it made me tear up at the end. It was, it was, it was just a, a great way, like you say, of just visualizing the idea that, he knows things are going to go on. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And and again, I've this is something I've been telling other people is that just overall with this particular production, my personal feeling is if you don't get choked up at least once or twice, you really have no soul. <laughs> you really don't. There, I was just thinking of moments that that really get to me, and one of them is that just that beautiful sequence where he's he, the he's saying that speech about all gone, all gone now. Just saying it right now, I'm starting to actually tear up. It's just like, it's such a beautiful scene, and he sort of just wanders off the set confused. It makes me, I feel painful. I feel pain when they keep showing the the recurring press photo calls. Oh, And all the companions changing. And it's also beautiful writing and direction, because if you watch it, every time they do one, he is increasingly confused and disconnected. And if I remember correctly... He's increasingly further apart from the rest of yeah, them. Yeah. He's he's becoming isolated. It's it's fantastic visual there, but it's so sad. Yeah. There's there's no joy in the moment at all. He's just lost. And uh and I've talked we we talked in that Chronic Rift episode about how I felt that for me I've connected to the first doctor a lot after Susan left because it's not just the doctor change, you could tell that Hartnell changed. This movie really drives home that idea that as the family breaks up, he becomes more and more isolated and vulnerable and is reaching out to be and probably one of the most 
heartbreaking moments too is the moment where he he takes Verity's hand and he's like, "You've been my rock," and oh. and you know that she's already leaving. I know it's horrible. Yeah, and and by the way, and I think it's Gatus. I mean, Gatus is uh, I think been vocal many times about how like I think it's his all time favorite era is the Pertwee era. One of the he did write a book that I always loved that was like the definitive tribute to the Pertwee era, Last of the Gadarene, which is a BBC books Doctor Who novel from many years back. It's like a love letter to the Pertwee era, and that scene of uh, Verity's farewell party and him standing off in the console room and on the set is a tribute to the Green Death, the end of the Green Death with sure. Joe going off. And it's like, even that is kind of slipped in there. It's it's just amazing stuff. And of course, it's kind of nice that during that party, we see a few cameos from some people. From That's right. If you don't notice, uh, we should mention these because I actually have seen people online. I mean, it's all listed on IMDb and everything. People are saying, well, who is it? <laughs> if you look at Verity Lambert's farewell party, Gene Marsh and Annika Wills are there. Yeah, they're right next to each other. Uh, yeah. And, uh, William Russell, I mentioned earlier, William Russell has a cameo at the beginning of the movie as the car park attendant, uh, who's yelling at Sidney Newman, I think, for parking <laughs> in the wrong place. not the way place. we do things around here, sir, at the BBC. Yeah. But one that a lot of people have missed because it's shot at night, or at least looks like night, and you don't really notice it, but she's very clear to see once you know, is a Carol Ann Ford, Susan, is the woman who's who runs out into the street in the foreground and is yelling at the kids to come home because that thing you like to watch is coming on or you know oh okay that I, even I missed that yeah and she's got like uh like clips in her hair and everything and she's got like the house coat she's like come on home that thing you like to watch is on or something like that <laughs> that's beautiful and I think it's the night of the Daleks uh turning up or oh, so. okay, but right. it's, it's it's around that point anyway so so yeah so she's in there too and uh, there might be. a couple of us, but those are the ones I remember that, that some people were talking about. And the more great kisses to the past, as they say. Yeah. That we we had so many of them this weekend and, and so many gifts that you could not have wished for a better 50th anniversary. G2B. Which doctor? Just say his name. He's got to have a name. Who? Who? Doctor Who? You know what, buddy? Guess what? You're fired. Simple as that. It's the last time I'm made to look like a fool. Now, one of the other amusing gifts to fans that we saw over the weekend was Peter Davison's Five-ish, The Five-ish Doctors. Did it have a subtitle or was that it, just The Five-ish Doctors? I think the full thing was The Five-ish Doctors rebooted. Oh, rebooted, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which, was a, which was a very silly 30-minute <laughs> production about uh, the remaining, well, about, in, in particular, about Peter Davison, Colin Baker, uh, Sylvester McCoy, and not really Paul McCann. <laughs> Temporarily Paul McGann until he suddenly apparently has a TV commitment. <laughs> that part I really like. I like the way he was in on the plan until all of a sudden he vanishes. He's just not like, there. He's not there anymore. Yeah. But anyway, it's about these guys, you know, tr trying to find their way into the 50th anniversary special. Uh, by hook or by crook. By hook or by crook. It is, um, it's full of loads of amusing little nods to the series, to the actors who've worked on the series, to some of the, the crew on the series as well. Um, it's, uh, it's very lighthearted. 
It has some big Hollywood A-list cameos. It does. We get an Ian McKellen appearance in there. We get a nice uh, appearance by Peter Jackson. Uh, lots of Hobbit jokes, of course. It's very self-deprecating uh, to a fault. It's to far a fault is what I would say. Um, yeah. Some really odd little jokes that unless you really are in, you won't know and won't quite understand. I mean, the thing with, with Barrowman having this family... <laughs> Oh, I love that. I also <laughs> love the bin filled with Barrowman CDs and DVDs. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And again, self-deprecating and and you know, it's the we we the, the nice thing is we know a lot of these guys are are open to that kind of thing. Oh, sure. Um, so they wouldn't have done it. You know, no, not at all. It. I mean, they're they're perfectly fine with that. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about the Colin Baker line about what does he say about eating? Um, oh God, it was from that. You know, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here, or whatever that show was. He did. Oh, I can't remember, but oh. something about eating anus. Some kind of <laughs> anus on television that he's not. It's not beyond him to do something else. But but anyway, it is a fun little production. Uh, as as we've said, it's it's very self deprecating and it, it, at times almost a little uncomfortable to watch. Uh, yeah, but I it, did think so. <laughs> but I it's did. out there. You're you can track that down and give it a view. What I mean, what did you think, Arnold? Do you have anything else you'd like to add about it? I, 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 it was cute. It, it, it had, I think it had, well, I make a Doctor Who joke. I guess it's hearts from the right places. Uh, uh, um, I, I, I don't know how this will come across. I, I actually, the thing that I walked away with from that more than anything else was that seeing them back in their outfits and trying to get into the 50th absolutely sold me on the idea that as i think i mentioned earlier it probably would not have worked if they'd come back yeah and i don't mean that they're not great actors and i don't mean they couldn't have written a story that would have made it work but when you actually see them i changed my mind completely as we said earlier i i, I think that it probably the day the doctor did the story it needed to do mm-hmm. and they made excellent choices and the other the classic doctors were involved in the way that was best for them to be involved and then on the side, you get this nice little extra little love letter to the fans where these guys just, you know, go nuts and do some wacky things. And yeah, it's, it's a bit of, up. it's, it's a Doctor Who road movie, basically, is what it you is. get. Uh, you know, a lot of over the top chases and, and just goofy jokes. And, and it also, you know, we get, we get an appearance from, uh, Tennant. We get an appearance from Matt Smith. Uh, and who else is in there? You've also got, of course, you've got, uh, Moffat, who's just completely, denying access to these guys in every way and even deleting their voicemails, which is really harsh. And yeah. you even get a Russell Davis uh, appearance at the end, which is, again, it, it, completely it insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, there you go. Happy 50th, everybody. Happy 50th. Yeah, it is. It's an insane little production. But uh, like you said, the hearts are in the right place. And if you go into it uh, knowing that, it can be a lot of fun. Well, and we should mention one other little extra uh, thing. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, if, you, if you've been watching all the stuff that's been on television, there's plenty more that we're not talking about. They did a Science of Doctor Who special with physicist Brian Cox appearing on the TARDIS. There's been all kinds of peripheral stuff that's been done as well. Um, but one thing I guess we should also mention is the big finish that um, you know something about um, that has been doing uh, Doctor Who audio dramas since the end of the 90s did its own 50th anniversary special called Light at the End, uh, which unites in true traditional multi-doctor style, unites all of the classic doctors from 4th to the 8th 
in an adventure that is a, a special release. And it has, as the day of the Doctor did, it has its moments where some of the byplay between individual pairs of Doctors or groups are probably the true highlights of that story. In fact, the thing, the, the thing that really strikes me is some bits and pieces between Tom Baker's Fourth Doctor and Paul McGann's Eighth are some of the things I remember best from that one. Little touches here and there. Um, it has a tone at the end that might strike you as a little odd, <laughs> but I'll probably leave it at that and you see what you think. But it's, but it's certainly, it takes the more traditional road, and given the fact that it's audio, doesn't have to wrestle with any of the issues that a visual production might have to do in bringing them all back together, and can just do that. And in the past, Big Finish have done anniversary events like that, uh, like something called uh, Zagreus, that tried to do something a little different or had doctors playing different characters. This just goes all out with what you'd most expect as a fan. It's all the doctors all together, all dealing with the same issue and having to join forces to, to save the day. Uh, and it does link to November 23rd, 1963 in a significant way too. So if you're a fan of Big Finish and that side of things, there's yet another 50th anniversary adventure to enjoy. Well, the 50th anniversary celebration of Doctor Who was certainly full of uh, wonderful surprises and certainly wonderful gifts for all of us, fans and uh, new viewers alike. Uh, you can certainly check out The Day of the Doctor, which was terrific, an adventure in space and time, also really, really wonderful. Be sure to go and check out Night of the Doctor, probably before you watch Day of the Doctor, because it leads a little bit into what, what the, the whole War Doctor storyline. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got the Five-ish Doctors reboot, which was great fun, and of course, Light at the End from Big Finish. And it doesn't stop there. There have been some other uh, print issues. Radio Times, of course, did how many covers? Twelve covers? of, Or did they actually do more for uh, the special edition covers of their mix? I don't. I don't actually know. I know they did covers for all the Doctors, so I guess they did. Um... Did they do a Capaldi one? I don't know if they did a Capaldi one. His appearance in the special, by the way, some people uh, noted, is not credited when you look at the credits at the end. He's yeah, it's a little weird. He's an uncredited eye cameo. That's what it is. <laughs> but anyway, so there certainly was. Uh, there's no end of stuff out there to uh, help you celebrate the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. I'm sure it's going to continue to come out. There'll be more coming on. I'm sure. So your holidays will be replete with Doctor Who material and merchandise. And of course, there's also rumors of more missing episodes being found and recovered that well, I'm sure we'll get into down the line at some point. But uh, yeah, so from uh, from the two of us here at the GW Podcast. Uh, happy anniversary to Doctor Who. It was a really, really terrific anniversary for sure, and we look forward to more in the future. We'll see you all in 2063 for the 100th. <laughs> and thanks for listening to the G2V Podcast, now part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, and please rate us while you're there. Visit our website at g2vpodcast.com. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at G2V Podcast. And if you have any comments or questions, send them our way via contact at G2VPodcast.com. Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. <laughs>